gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's guest. He is a fan favorite. I believe for a long time he was in the lead with the most appearances on here, but I think he has since been overtaken by Chris Starwalt. Um, And it just shows you our commitment to rank punditry on this podcast, (laughs) that the two leaders, two of the leaders, both in the hearts of our listeners, but also in repeat appearances, our, our, our pundits par excellence. Um, and I, of course, am referring to my former colleague at the Ma- at National Review and good friend, uh, Jim Garrity. Jim, welcome back to The Remnant. Jonah, it is good to be back. And uh, I don't want to, like, you know, tell Chris Drywall to watch his back. But yeah, I, I noticed that I had not been on for a while. And it's one of those things where I felt like I felt a need to correct that, uh, to elbow my way in, to crash through your wall like the Kool-Aid man. And uh, just, you know, get back, you know, to, to also check in with you, see what's on your mind, see what's going on in your world. You know? Yeah, although in, 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 in fairness to the historical record, um, you, of course, were invited to the 400th anniversary episode. And you had some, quote unquote, family obligation that uh, pre- precluded it. And I believe that it was around then that Starwald started to overtake you because he, he yeah. came instead. So, you know, so the lesson is don't have families. No, exactly. that's not that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, it is it is it is lovely to have you here. And of course, we should mention up front, and we'll mention it again in a little bit. But you have yet another novel. We don't have a lot of novelists on on this podcast. Um, we have a lot of people who make up stuff, but no, we don't. But uh, <laughs> but we don't have a lot of novelists on here. Your latest, as part of the dangerous. Now you say dangerous click. Yeah. Um, because you are a red blooded American. But I always thought that the spelling of that that spelling C L I Q U E was clique. But mm. I maybe that's just the French Frenchified version. Regardless, it's part of the Dangerous Click uh, series, and the latest book is called uh, Gathering Five Storms, and mm-hmm. it is supposed to be a page turner and wonderful. I have not gotten to it yet because I don't I don't think I ever read for pleasure anymore because that's my this is the life I have chosen. That is unfortunate, but I, I must say um, the good news about doing these kind of books is that I get to like do all kinds of research. And if I feel like writing about ancient cults, I can put that in there. Um, this one, so I, the short version is I have this idea for this team of, you know, kind of a Mission Impossible type team. And for those who like Brad Thor, for those who like Brad Taylor, Taylor those kinds of action thrillers, there is a, a heavy chunk of it. Um, but if you've read my political writing, you will notice that I am not the most serious guy in the world. And I would not pretend to write a, you know, dense, tech-heavy, uh, Tom Clancy-style thriller. Uh, I don't, you know, my, my people have said that the characters in this, this series talk like they're giving Dennis Miller mo- monologues. Um, there's a lot of snarky one-liners and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's... Um, I know you've talked about the idea of writing a zombie book someday, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'd love to see you try your hand at fiction. But one of the one of the lessons of all this is that you can do really dark stuff in your plot line. You can have all kinds of terrible, scary things happening if the char- if the audience likes your characters. And uh, they, you know, you asked about the name whether it should be Clique. Well, first of all, as bad as the name as the Dangerous Click is, it'd be even worse to be the Dangerous Clique. Uh, for it makes you think that these are a bunch of you know 
uh, special operations French pastry chefs or something like that that are, you know, running around the world parachuting in and baking or something like that. Well, um, I, so I was, I, I've talked about this on here before. I'm sure I've mentioned this to you, but I was burned by the uh, uh, wildly underrated second book I wrote, uh, The Tyranny of Clichés, because um, it was a terrible title. Sounds, as I often say, sounds like a steroidal style guide, like, um, <laughs> and, uh, but I learned in the process that something on the order of 25% of talk radio hosts in this country do not know how to pronounce the word cliche. And so I would get introduced as Jonah Goldberg, author of The Tyranny of the Clitches. And oh, my. Oh dear. You then sit in this absolute panic of oh, do no. I correct them? Or do this I just book? Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I just refer to cliche over and over again so that they understand that it's not that word. Anyway. Um, but I, I do want to correct you on one thing because I think one of the things you and I both have in common as writers is you said that you're not a serious guy. I don't think that's quite fair to you. I think it's that you and, and also Brother Starwall and whatever mm -hmm. and, and others, but we take ideas in politics seriously. We just don't take ourselves too seriously, which is a, a difference. There are lots of writers out there um, who feel like they are delivering tablets to the <laughs> masses and yeah. th therefore they have to be very, very fussy and self-serious, and some of them deserve it. Like, I think George Will owns his seriousness authentically. But a lot of writers, some of whom I'm sure we could name when we weren't being recorded, uh, have a pose of seriousness that is not mirrored in their analysis or in their prose, to be brutally honest. And mm -hmm. it's better not to take yourself seriously unless, you know, like Tom Sowell gets to take himself seriously, and he takes himself yeah, very seriously. He's, he's earned it. Yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of people out there, you know, these 22-year-olds who, you know, come up from the minors every now and then who think that they can just assert that they have sort of George Willian or Tom Sowellian authority and they write like it. And people are like, you know, like, this guy's not Henry Kissinger. He just got out of Duke or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, but anyway, be that as it may. So, like, before we get off the book, and we, we can circle back to it again, but... Yeah. Um, when you were writing your 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 barn burner page turner must have uh, must read book uh, the gather gathering five storms, how do you try to keep the day to day politics that has to consume part of your brain out of it, or do you just try to channel it towards healthy ends? I very much want the books to not be diatribes. So these are thriller adventures. These are. Uh, I like to describe it as the characters of Firefly, the plot line of a 24 season, and maybe a dollop of, uh, well, actually a lot of the office, you know, office politics, bureaucracy, how the Central Intelligence Agency actually works. Uh, and maybe a dollop of the strangeness of Twin Peaks, but uh, not too much of that because a little bit goes a long way. And uh, it was interesting with the review of the first one, Between Two Scorpions, which I think you, you were kind enough to have me on to talk about. Uh, somebody said that, like, for a non-political book, the cops are the good guys. Owning a gun is a good thing. Um, they, they did a very interesting analysis of how I see the world permeated the characters and the setting and just the way the world was. Um, and, you know, that, that one very much the theme of Between Two Scorpions was 
Uh, the, the gist is like, what would happen if a terrorist group really understood Americans and really knew how to turn us against each other? And uh, a lot of that book written pre-pandemic, pre, you know, I think when I wrote it, when I first started writing it, I thought Hillary Clinton was be the next president. So I kind of had that in mind. The, the president, the unnamed president in it uh, appears once and talks about the terror attacks and says, these people are animals. We're, we're going to hunt them down. They're going to be the worst. But I never named the president. So it could be anybody. Sure. Sure, but, sure, sure. Uh, um, it, it was interesting to see somebody pick out how things that aren't necessarily even political, but kind of philosophical, how you see the world, um, how your loved ones will get you through anything in this world in a way that, you know, big abstract values may or may not be able to do it for you. Um, it was interesting to see somebody talking about how there's no politics in this, but yet the politics very much shape how I see the world and how that comes through with the characters and things like that. So, so no one read it and said, gosh, this Garrity clearly wants to defund the FBI. <laughs> uh, no, but also I think a clear eyed recognition that uh, big institutions can get bureaucratic and slow moving and um, careerism, uh, the desire to not make waves and that fear, you know, like the whole gist of my team is that they're fed up with the whole thing. And they're barely on the organization chart. And they basically just want to go out and kill bad guys before they can do terrible things. And every now and then, there, there's, I try not to have too much of the standard, you know, maverick cop, gun and badge, you know, that kind of yeah. cliched stuff. But more of this sense of like, mm, this guy's going to be a problem someday. So we need to make it look like an accident, but also make it look like it's not an accident. So everybody knows we did this. Yeah. But don't, don't you run into like... All right, so this is actually one of the oldest themes on this podcast. I think Yuval Levin and I talked about it on the second episode. And this is something I think you got into aptly in the weed agency, which is that contrary to a lot of popular perceptions, a lot of thriller novels, a lot of Hollywood, and a lot of conspiracy theorists on the left and increasingly on the right these days, very few people in the government know what the hell they're doing. And I, I don't mean that as a, <laughs> yeah, in a sort of negative yeah. way necessarily, but there's this idea that somehow, whether it's Chuck Schumer or the head of the CIA or whoever, they have a plan. They will agree on their plan and then they will implement their plan and they will have foreseen all of the possible unintended consequences that always hit plans upon contact with reality and, and that all the bad things that or good things that happen are are straight line, dot-connected uh, uh, consequences of someone's inten someone in government's intentionality. Mm -hmm. When in reality, it's like the second you propose a piece of legislation or a policy, or even if you implement a policy or pass legislation, it never, for good or for bad, you know, it never actually achieves exactly what people intended on the time frame that they intended without negative consequences that they didn't intend. Um, and that's a sort of a problem for fiction, right? Because fiction, you want characters to actually have their vision satisfied, right, and implemented. Yeah, I was going to say the, the most realistic conspiracy story will be uh, when some relatively low-level flunky in the conspiracy, but who knows enough, hits on a cocktail waitress, kind of hammered and says, you know, we're doing genetic experimentation out in Area 51. I'm actually one of the security guards, but trust <laughs> exactly. me, I run the whole thing. I, I can get <laughs> you in there to show you someday, you know. Um, you know, actually, so, one, so people will notice it goes between two scorpions, uh, hunting four horsemen, which is about genetic engineering of viruses and targeting particular ethnic groups, 
and uh, Gathering Five Storms, which kind of is one part of flashback to the team's formation and origin right around the time of the um, invasion of Iraq and uh, a crisis going on in the modern day. Someone basically has figured out who the team is and is coming after them, and they don't really know who. It appears to relate back to that first mission, but um, everybody they fought then is dead. So now they're like, okay, is this zombies? Is this some some unthread we've left? And so you kind of go through flashbacks to go the formation of the team. Um, my third book, which I had ready to go, and then the COVID-19 pandemic came, was the idea of going to be about this hunting for this diary of a Cold War legendary spy. And my idea for this was that it would be interspersed with segments of this diary. And all of the uh, conspiracies that were stuff in this, this spy's diary would be things that actually happened here in the real world that people don't really know about. For example, the Dalai Lama was a CIA agent. I knew uh, it. But let's say, back, you know, people like, oh, you know, when people look at this, like, no, no, back in the 1950s and 60s, when the U.S. was supporting Tibet against a Chinese invasion and occupation, he was on the payroll of the Central Intelligence Agency as part of that effort. And, you know, obviously it stopped. Um, we rather, to my, from my perspective, we rather horrifically abandoned the Tibetans uh, in this effort, once is, you can blame this on Richard Nixon deciding to reach out to China. Um, but that was, the, the, there's been a whole bunch of theories with some evidence about the uh, Yuri Gagarin being the first Soviet man to go into space, or whether Yuri Gagarin was the first Soviet man to survive going into space, and this mm-hmm. theory of the lost cosmonauts, mm-hmm. the idea that there were a bunch of programs that did not succeed. Um, have you ever seen the uh, museum display bodies, which mm-hmm. are all about... Okay, so this is the, they, they're basically human bodies in which they've been pre- preserved, and you can see the circulatory system and the muscle system and all that stuff. They're all uh, prisoners from China hmm. whose bodies were donated. Uh, by, you know, with the question of whether they were actually donated and whether they were actually uh, genuine, you know, whether those were coerced donations or whether they were political prisoners, things like that. Where is this museum exhibit? What? Uh, bodies. Oh, it's been traveling. Um, Uh I know it was over in London for a while. I'm pretty sure it was somewhere here in the United States. Um, I've missed this entirely. I can't say I missed it, missed it, but I missed it. So basically I looked up for like every strange conspiracy theory that turned out to be true. And the idea would be that this spy, uh, the kind of the wise mentor figure of my team, uh, not only had this long and uh, wild and crazy career, that all um, the Stasi tried to recruit Angela Merkel. She turned them down. But the idea is that my uh, my mentor character will have, you know, met her and told her, don't do it. You have a great future in politics. This will ruin everything. And so she turns down the Stasi. Uh, now, she talked about this. Um, there was a shooting in, this is all the stuff that will now, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm ruining book three here. But uh, <laughs> this is why people listen to your podcast, to get stuff they can't get anywhere else. Um, there was a shooting of an anti-war protester in Germany. Uh, back in the late 60s, it was kind of the equivalent of their Kent State. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, the guy was protesting. I think it was, I don't know if the Shah was visiting or something. or but it, was, it was one of those things where, like, you know, a, a cop just basically shot a protester. That guy was on Stasi payroll. And they only discovered that decades later. Um, so all these kinds of things that are, like, Cold War secrets and stuff like that that we know, except they really didn't make a big splash here. We're going to be that book of secrets that we're going to be in this book that they had to recover and save the day and all that stuff. So I may someday go back and finish that book, as you can tell us. It's, it's you know, never too far from my mind. So in terms of conspiracies, though, is the is the is the ever increasing. Value of the numbers and the titles going to like 
eventually come out to be a numerical code of some kind because it's two scorpions, yeah, uh, four what was it, uh, horses, four horse, now five four storms, horsemen. and yes. a partridge, you know, a partridge in a pear tree kind of thing, right? I mean, so like. The day is going to come when I'm going to have to create 11 Lords a Leaping of Death or something like that. Yeah. Um, Sue Grafton eventually was going to run out of letters in the alphabet. X is for xylophone. (laughs) Um, uh, This is one of the problems with starting to name generations after X, right? Because like you only have that much alphabet left, you know, in front of you. On On the Cold War stuff, this is something I've always been kind of mildly obsessed with is that People don't appreciate the degree to which one of the most lasting and pernicious legacies of the Soviet Union was just, you know, that garbage patch out in the Pacific Ocean? Mm -hmm. There is like an enormous amount of garbage that the Soviets pumped into a lot of particularly African newspapers in Mm. in the 60s and 70s that then get picked up by useful idiots in the West and turned into like actual news stories. So like, um, you know, the stuff, you know, the Soviets did all sorts of stuff with black politics here in the States, Mm -hmm. trying to like denigrate Martin, you know, like the one thing that the FBI and the KGB had in common is they both tried to smear Martin Luther King. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, the, the CIA invented AIDS. There are all of these... Cold War conspiracy theories things that were deliberately hatched by the Soviets that now just sort of float out there and live on in eternity now because of the internet, that if you peel it back, we're all just, you know, uh, 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 KGB um, propaganda efforts um, that the the left picked up often. One of the headlines in Oliver Stone's JFK is straight up KGB propaganda planted in an Italian newspaper. That ended up becoming a factor in Harrison's, yeah. Uh, sorry, Garrison's trial down there. Um, and so I, I have this. I had this short scene written of uh, the, the 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 mentor character's name is code name is Merlin. Mm-hmm. The idea that Merlin is watching JFK back in eighty eight or nineteen ninety or whatever it comes out, and he's just fuming because in his mind he beat the KGB, and now the KGB stuff is showing up on American movie screens. Brought to you by Oliver Stone. So. Just speaking of like, uh, I mean, this wasn't a KGB thing, but in um, in Oliver Stone's JFK, there's that whole bit about uh, J. Edgar Hoover cross-dressing and having this, you know, uh, sort of sexually weird party kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. That about, all, a scene you probably couldn't make today, probably. Probably not, because they were, oh, I, I love J. Edgar Hoover now. Uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, <laughs> my recollection, and I could get this wrong, it was that all comes from one person's bogus allegation that was just too good to check and mm-hmm. became a thing um, that was, you know, whether you want to call it a slander or not, certainly J. Edgar Hoover probably would have thought accusing him of being a crossdresser um, was, was slander. I'm not a big defender of J. Edgar Hoover, so like <laughs> that, this is more his problem and his fans than mine, but... Um, there's just a lot of that stuff that just sort of hangs around out there because people want it to be true. And a lot of it comes from KGB stuff. Since we're on KGB, um, we might as well start with, um, you know, uh, what's going on with Ukraine and, and Russia on that. Um, I just wrote my LA times column about this, although maybe my editors emailed me and rejected it. I haven't seen, um, uh, about, it's sort of this sort of fits in with what we've been talking about in that 
So everyone was surprised by how well Ukraine did in the last week, right? Everyone was also surprised that Putin actually invaded Ukraine. Everyone was also surprised that the Ukrainians did really well fending off Putin. Everyone was also surprised that the that Russia was willing to do use barbaric tactics that we th- kind of thought were like no longer done. Everyone was surprised that Joe Biden pulled out of Afghanistan. Everyone was surprised. You know, the Secretary of Defense said uh, we were all uh, taken by surprise that the Afghan military collapsed. Uh, Obama was taken by surprise that Russian reset didn't work. Obama was surprised that ISIS was actually not the JV team. George W. Bush was surprised that the... Freedom was not the yearning of every human heart. That's right, that the insurgency, you know, was, was a real thing for quite a while. He was surprised as were intelligence agencies around the world, that we didn't have WMDs. Um, in fact, since, I was going to say, you know, since the Cold War, we've been surprised by a lot of stuff, but we were surprised by the end of the Cold War. Like, intelligence agencies got that wrong, too. Um, and it, it does raise the question, what are we to make of the fact that so many, that the expert classes get so much stuff wrong and that the consensus turns out to be wrong about all sorts of things and in, and in both directions like mm-hmm. trump did a lot of things that i think were terrible we don't have to talk, get into the weeds and all that but all of the sophisticated cookie pushers thought the abraham accords were going to be a disaster and it turns out they worked mm-hmm. what does it say that the the consensus among foreign policy types is so often wrong and what do you think we should take from it uh, okay at the risk of sounding like a philistine jonah what if the problem is we study history and the traditional explanation is, you know, well, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And it is infuriating when you see some policy course or something. Uh, let's abolish the police, you know, or let's increase welfare payments. This will help, you know, all, all kinds of ideas. We're like, no, no, we've already had these arguments. We've right. already had these fights. One side was definitively proven right compared to the other. Let's prepare for a pandemic. No, those never happen. Right? Yeah. You know. <laughs> and yet here we have a situation, you know, no two circumstances are ever exactly alike, right? There, you know, you and I are the right age. We can probably remember. For the first couple of days of the Tiananmen Square uh, protests, I remember people thinking, wow, you know, maybe this is cha- changes coming to China because we had just seen some astounding changes take place in Eastern Europe. And, oh, well, here it comes. Well, actually, no, it was different. The, the culture, the rule, you know, the power of the Chinese Communist Party was different from that of the communist parties over in Eastern Europe. There aren't necessarily exact historical parallels. There are not exactly nation-to-nation parallels. And I wonder how much of this stems from uh, a desire to look for patterns and a desire to look for, uh, well, if X happened, then Y is going to happen, and not being able to account for the million different variables. And, you know, some of that comes to, are you really hearing what's going on in the, you know, cafe tables in the... Uh, bad neighborhoods of the capital city of this foreign country where you're wondering if there's going to be an uprising or something like that. Um, some of these things, like, you know, when, when there's a huge uprising in Sri Lanka, well, we're not paying much attention to Sri Lanka to begin with. So, you know, they would, the idea that they went to all natural fertilizer and it did not work and all of a sudden they had massive food shortages and things like that. Well, okay, maybe that was predictable, but it's not, you know, enough of a priority for things like that. Um, for all of the flaws, and in, you know, in these books, which are they're fiction, but I'd say they're heavily researched fiction. Central Intelligence Agency is first of all fantastic. People work there; they do their very best that they can. And if you think about it, our, all we ask of them is to know everything about everything all the time. 
which in retrospect, particularly from regimes and groups that don't want us to know what's going on, which you think about is kind of hard. You know, that's, that's, you know, but if it comes to something like counting tanks, well, those are hard to hide. So eventually you can go use satellites and you can look at the count of the number of tanks. You can count those. You get a, some, if, where are the tanks, right? That's something you can determine. What's going on in the mind of a terrorist? Well, that's harder to tell. And so some of what this measuring stick is, you know, we just came through the 9-11 anniversary. In the end, it came down to 19 guys in box cutters who were able to completely alter U.S. history and maybe world history uh, from what they were doing there. So some of this is the difficulty of really knowing. Some of this is really knowing the tipping point of when a regime is actually going to fall and when it's just another uprising that's going to get stomped down again. Um, I, I think in the end, yeah, maybe there is a bit of hubris here of thinking we can know what's going to happen in an ever-changing and always different world. Yeah, and I, as I wrote you know, today, I, I don't think this means that we should never rely on experts for anything. I think that it, because in part you have, there's a word for it. It's not um, negativity bias, but it's something like that where like, we know about the crises that, that weren't prevented because they were crises. We don't know about all the crises that were actually averted because they didn't become crises. Mm-hmm. Israel does all sorts of things on a daily basis to prevent stuff. And it causes people to think, well, Israel doesn't need to be so heavily armed. It doesn't need to do all of these things because there have been no terror attacks or, you know, there have been no, you know, uh, military assaults. The reason why there weren't any is because they were doing all of these things. And so you end up having success held against you and failure seeming and failure is used to define you, which is like, I don't know how you get around that, but at the same time, we've been surprised. But I mean, like 9-11 was another thing that surprised us pretty badly. Yeah, you go through those examples, and I'm just thinking of all of the Iranian nuclear scientists who have had very strange car trouble. Right. Um, usually your car doesn't start. In their cases, it tends to explode. Uh, right. Very odd how that happens. But yeah. That's um, why you always send the intern out to start the car. Yeah, yeah. So as you were giving the description about you know, like when should we trust experts and when are they maybe vulnerable to getting groupthink and stuff like that, particularly on the decision of Putin choosing to invade Ukraine, when the U.S. and NATO and everybody else had said, don't do this, don't do this, there will be consequences, we're going to do sanctions, stuff like that. Uh, the concept of mirroring, and the idea that if you grow up in a particular kind of culture and you have certain kind of values, you look across the table and you see some, you can't get your head around the idea that they could have completely different values. Right. I know your one of your favorite anecdotes is the senator who said, if only I could have talked to Hitler, I could have talked some sense to him or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I can't remember the senator, but there was the, um, George Pataki once said that, he says, I don't want to exaggerate, but if we, if, if when he signed some hate crimes law, he said, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think that if Germany had had this law, the Holocaust never would have happened. Oh, my God. And that's what made George Pataki that giant in American political history. Um, Wowzers. Uh, But so this idea that up until this point, Putin had been a kind of cold, calculating uh, figure who knew, who was often going to break the rules and who was also going to occupy Crimea, arm Russian-aligned groups in the Donbass. You know, he was always, you know, took a little piece of, of Georgia. He was always knowing where the line was and that he would do something provocative and bad and Obama or other presidents would come out and wag their finger and say, don't do this. 
but he always knew what he could, you know, kind of what he could get away with without really escalating it into a full-blown conflict with NATO. And on this one, his thinking was different because this is his, I suspect, his historical legacy. Um, I don't know what to make of all the reports that he's got health issues and things like that. But I think one of the most clarifying things I've read in the past year was all the different articles about how Putin is not like, um, was it Bush who said that he looked into his eyes and saw his soul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They bonded over Christianity. And I, I don't think you can look at Vladimir Putin torturing people on a regular basis and say, yeah, that's a good Christian. Right. Um, but I do think that Putin does see him like there's this whole idea of like of holy Russia, this idea of like his kind of historical and the idea that like God has, has chosen and blessed these people. And Putin sees his role as to be the guardian and defender of this. And to the extent Putin believes that's his, that's his God is like the, the, his view of the Russian people, not the actual Russian people, the actual Russian people could suffer all they want, but this, right. this vision, right. And in claiming Ukraine, that was going to be his legacy. He was going to be Putin the great. And that was going to be, you know, and so in a way, when he gets that, it's not necessarily logic and cold calculations and stuff like that. And so what I was writing today, I got, you know, I'm really thrilled to see the Ukrainians kicking the Russians butt back closer over towards their border. Um, but I do worry about whether at some point Russia kind of turns into this wounded animal and whether Putin reaches this point where he feels like he's got to set off a nuke or do something really extreme in order to say, well, I win, you know, mm. some sort of, of, you know, again, there's, you know, from the U S perspective, there may not be any good, easy options here. Um, but I kind of feel like, okay, I'm, I, I enjoy seeing retreating Russians as much as the next guy. But I do wonder if there's some other shoe that's where we're going to it's going to drop sometime in the next couple of weeks or months. Yeah, no, I, I, I read your piece. I, and I, I largely agree with you. In fact, it's what made me decide to not write that piece because you okay. um, <laughs> I, was gonna, I, had this, I had this lead in mind of basically saying that the Russia Russia deserves to be humiliated. It's just not entirely obvious. It's in our interest to humiliate mm. Russia. And I, I take your point. And now I wish I'd written it that way. <laughs> and and things can go south in all sorts of terrible ways. At the same time, like I saw, what's his name? Um, is it McFall, the former ambassador to Russia, on uh, TV this morning? And he was making the case that, you know, you actually have to ask, what does Putin get out of using a tactical nuke? I liked his point. Um, at the same time, the... You, the mere moment you concede that we're talking about a person willing to use a tactical nuke mm. means that you cannot have a strict realpolitik cost-benefit analysis analysis of the person willing to use a tactical nuke. I mean, it's like if, if I'm willing to eat your liver um, <laughs> on live television, <laughs> you, like, trying to interpret my motives through the prism of yeah. homo economicus is not going to get you very far, right? No. So, he's deficient in iron. That's what he's trying to tell us, you know? <laughs> But um, at the same time, he made the point, he says, look, if you use the tactical nuke, the assumption there is that the Ukrainians would all of a sudden sue for peace. And he's not, he knows Ukraine and Russia better than I do. You know, he's not convinced that would happen. In fact, what you could see all of a sudden is Ukrainians in Russia starting to do Mm. terrorist acts in Moscow, right? I mean, like the Ukrainians, and we all have this conception of, nuclear weapons being game enders the way, because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But like, first of all, no one had ever seen anything like that before. It wasn't like priced into the, 
psyche in a way, and the shock value was enormous. And I'm not saying that the shock value is using a tactical nuke wouldn't be enormous, but at the same time, it's not obvious to me that like the Ukrainian response wouldn't be different than what Putin intended. And in fact, mm. we already know that the Ukrainian response to his conventional invasion has been very different than what Putin intended. And the idea that we're going to let Putin saber rattle with nukes has its own enormous negative consequences too. I'm, I'm not saying I have an answer. I just mm. don't think everyone else's answer to these scenarios is all that convincing either. One of the things that comes to mind is whether Putin sees that as, well, if I do that, the world will still fear me. It's very Machiavellian. It's better to be feared than loved. And the fear, you know, like, I wonder if Putin fears, nobody fears him anymore. If he looks weak, if his army looks weak, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other, you know, the other thought is like, I, my, as I was trying to, like, you know, war game out all the different options earlier in the year, I talked about like, you know, so what are the actual effects of a tactical nuke, which are, you know, we, we have this image of, you said Hiroshima or Nagasaki and the idea of a city being destroyed. I'm not saying a tactical nuke is small. <laughs> I'm not saying it can't ruin your whole day, but it is not necessarily this kind of widespread, uh, and there, there are options depending on where you decide to release it, where you can limit the amount of radiation. You could do a giant electromagnetic pulse over a large area and stuff like that. Um, my, my, my first thought was, okay, well, well, he'll set one off on a, new, on a mountaintop or something somewhere where the radiation would not get into urban areas, would not ruin some of the farming, important farming soil. We wouldn't destroy any of the resources that he hoped to occupy someday. And it would basically be his signal of like, that's my warning shot. Next one goes in Kiev. Come to the negotiating table. And the other, th you know, so the, the, or you could actually, if he got, forbid he ever, you know, like nuked Kiev, like that would be, a, you know, very much changing the future of Kiev, uh, the future of Ukraine forever. My other thought is whether the aim for that would be to intimidate Europe and to get Europe to say, well, look, we've been willing to support you, Zelensky. We've been willing to support you, but this is getting way out of control and we've all got to figure out some uh, way to placate the bear. So you're going to have to make some territorial concessions. And that's how Putin gets his win. I, you know, the crazier scenarios have happened. I'm not saying that's definitely how things would shake out, but, um, you know, Putin hates to look weak. And this whole thing has been a, year-long massive humiliation that he and his country are not what they thought they were. And that's got to be a really, you know, devastating blow on top of the sanctions, on top of all this other kind of stuff. So, you know, I would like to, look, the effort, U.S. efforts and NATO efforts to deter the invasion did not work, which is why I'm hoping we have a better plan for deterring use of nuclear weapons and things like that. I do think because nukes are seen as non-conventional, it could lead options for other non-conventional U.S. weapons. And I'm thinking more like, not, I'm not thinking U.S. nukes, I'm thinking more like cyber warfare. I'm talking about knocking their satellites off of orbit, things like that. So. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I haven't thought about it. I mean, this just occurred to me now, but like NATO declaring, you know, if you do something that causes radioactive fallout to land in NATO countries, we're going to consider that a massive, yeah. you know, a I, I think you need something that intense to say, Yeah, the moment you pull that trigger, you know, all bets are off. Yeah. It's on like Donkey Kong. You know, also, I mean, I, I mean, it's also just a very strange argument to make that we must save, we must liberate Ukraine because Kiev is where Russia was born. And that's why we're nuking Kiev. <laughs> yes. um, and it's, it's also not necessary. I, like, 
I don't know the Russian people as well as Putin does, you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, it is not obvious to me that that would come across to the Russian people as a sign of strength mm. more le- and less as a sign of desperation and acting in weakness. But there's also the question whether the generals would uh, yeah. obey the order. I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of questions, but we don't, yeah. you know, we're not going to solve this, this issue right now, nor are we going to solve really any issues. But, um, <laughs> Uh, that's one of the reasons why this podcast is called the remnant is because we are not in the position to solve anything, but, um, moving to the domestic front. Uh, so here's the thing. I'm sort of, I heard Charlie Cook say this on, on the editors the other day. Um, and I'm kind of in the same place when I play with like the Senate map, it, kind of, it, it seems kind of easy to get to 51. Yeah. Um, for Republicans, I should say. Yeah. But uh, my gut tells me, like, I'm missing something and that it feels like, at best, a toss-up um, about where the, the Senate goes. Where are you coming at it these days? A, a similar spot. Uh, I think the life, I don't know if it was the same episode, but lately people ask me, how do you see the Senate? And I'd say, ah, you know, Republicans, 51 seats, Democrats, 49 they gain control, but they don't gain control by a large margin. Uh, I haven't really thought about whether, you know, Murkowski then decides to flip or something like that. Uh, you know, like, I think, you know, Republicans could gain, could very easily could gain control of the Senate. If it's not 50-50, it's not too much worse than 50-50. But I think what is irksome and why Republicans may feel down about that is that mid-June, gas is five bucks a gallon. Everything Biden touches is turning to you know what, um, his approval rating is abysmal, was getting into the upper 30s. Uh, Harris sounded incoherent in every public appearance. Like everything that possibly could go wrong was going wrong for Democrats. And in that scenario, you're like, oh, well, we're starting 50-50. We're gaining three or four. And we're gaining a big House majority and, you know, a whole bunch of good governorships. And Katie Barr, the door, it's, you know, it's on par with 2010 or uh 2014 or something. You know, it's going to be another awesome midterm where Republicans rock. And I think it's now looking like it's not going to be that. Now, it is mid-September as we're having this conversation. You know, things can change. And I think what probably has you feeling that sense of trepidation is that we've seen in the last, you know, week or two of an election, things shift, things solidify. Um, Third-party candidates tend to drop to, you know, low single digits. People decide to jump on the bandwagon of one of the two major party candidates. Uh, so things may look different in six weeks. Uh, things may look different in four weeks. You know, we're going to have some of these debates and things like that. Um, so I, I currently feel like, you know, I think Republicans can, you know, still win the Senate, although it's close. And they don't have a huge margin for error and they've been held back by a bunch of really subpar uh, nominations, uh, Senate nominees. And I think they win the House. I think it's not this massive, you know, I think Gingrich was saying 40, 60 80 bazillion, you know, house seats and stuff like that. Um, I think they get a majority. Some of this is because they have a high floor that they're already starting. You know, they're not going to, they just, there's not as much low hanging fruit. You know, Biden did not have big coattails. So you don't have Democrats representing the Southern tip of South Carolina or Oklahoma city or some of these seats they've had in the past that they, you know, uh, usually would have no business winning and they won because of either, you know, bad Republican candidates or something. So um, I think, you know, Republicans will win but I think it'll feel like a disappointment. And I think it should feel like a disappointment because the stage was set 
for a monster year, and instead Republicans will have a eh, pretty good year. I want to get back. I want to get to a meta question in a little bit, but first, on, on just sort of on the rank punditry side, if let's say it's um, mid-November and uh, the the various people who do autopsies are doing their autopsies. And let's say, say there, let's say the last time I looked, the CBS congressional tracker projected a gain of 12 seats for Republicans, which a, a lot of people I talk to say is too low. Um, but uh, the historic norm is 24. Um, and I think, I mean, just as you alluded to in June, everyone figured that it was going to be well above the historic norm. And now I think Republicans will count themselves lucky if they just hit the 24, which is, you know, sort of normal. And, um, and they would count themselves lucky if they had 51 seats in the Senate. So let's say they, let's say they got 20 seats in the house or something along those lines and carried the Senate by one, one Senator. Where do you think the autopsy would rank the reasons why Republicans in effect blew it? Like, is it uh, in the Senate? Is it primarily candidate choice? Is it uh, Dobbs? Is it that the, um, is it that Biden had a bunch of successes that, you know, uh, changed the narrative? Is it that the, infl that inflation died down, which is not the Republicans fault, right? Um, <laughs> Um, and if only they could take credit for such a thing, um, or is it that, uh, national elections, uh, that midterm elections have been so completely nationalized in the la over the last 20 years that the damage mm -hmm. that, that letting the craziest Republicans, who I know you have no mm -hmm. sympathy for, um, sort of define the brand, um, and including Trump, uh, scare away those voters at the margins who are the ones that give you the kind of waves that you were, were hoping for. Like, how would you, how would you assign blame in retrospect if we had that kind of outcome? Ugh, um, cause I think you listed off there, like the top four reasons. And yeah, so but like, what, like which ones order. do you think matter the most or the least? Yeah. I mean, I, um, and, 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 and yeah. is Dobbs, sub-question, right? I, I don't mean it to be like I'm the economics depressor and you're Rodney Dangerfield and I give you a 74-part question and then you just answer four. But um, uh, um, do you think the Dobbs decision, do you think its effect was primarily the activating the, the pro-abortion crowd or do you think it had, was the more diffuse kind of it took the issue of this being a, a referendum on the incumbent away and made it a choice. As a pro-life guy, I'm not happy with what I'm seeing since the decision in terms of the politics of it. Uh, I very much am glad to see this return to the states. But yeah, I mean, my first thought was, okay, so this is going to generate some enthusiasm amongst Democrats. And the Democrat, one of the big things that made the midterms look like it was going to be this giant red tsunami was not just that Republicans were really fired up. It was that Democrats were pretty depressed. Uh, they had gotten what they wanted. They, you know, they had Biden in the White House. They had a Democratic Senate, even though it was close. And they had uh, a Democratic House. And they thought this meant nirvana. This, this, they're going to be able to get everything they want. And a lot of stuff was not happening. And 
they spent almost a year arguing about Build Back Better, and they were really mad at Mansion and Cinema, and it just was this sense of Democrats that nothing goes right. Ugh, what's the use? What's the point? People weren't unenthused. Bringing the abortion issue front and center, and basically saying not just, basically saying to voters, who you elect as governor, who you elect to your state legislature is going to have huge consequences of whether you still have the right to an abortion. That, you know, that, that lit a fire under them. And I also think that since then, pro-life Republicans, both in office and on the campaign trail, by and large, have handled this very badly. Mm-hmm. And by and you know, probably the worst example is Blake Masters mm-hmm. treating his campaign issues segment of his website like an etch-a-sketch. Right. Shake it enough and it disappears. You know, that might be the single worst example. But those, uh, we have not seen clear forthright statements from pro-life Republicans. And, you know, I describe myself as a pro-life guy. I'm perfectly fine if people say, you know what? We're banning partial birth abortion. We're putting in parental notification for minors uh, with exceptions for rape or incest. We are uh, going to put in, you know, like the, the tail end of the third trimester. We're going to start that. We're going to see how that goes. I'm fine with that. I, I do not think you need to turn the, the uh, policies of this country around on a dime. I think you got to get people used to it. And unfortunately, I think the, pro, the pro-life law Republicans who are of my mindset are having trouble articulating that. And how do we tell pro-life advocates, okay, you don't get everything you want right now. And then there are other candidates who are like, yeah, hell yeah, we're abandoning it and rape and incest. Hell yeah, we're going to, you know, get rid of, you know. Uh, there was, of course, some ninny who said he wants to ban contraception. And, you know, we've never heard of this guy. We're never going to hear of this guy. But he said it. And now, you know, every Democrat, every media person who wants to write a story on Republicans trying to ban contraception has, you know, Floyd R. Turbo out there in wherever the hell it was to point to. Right. So that's not helping Republicans at all in the slightest. So, um, it, it was. It's been an interesting lesson for Republicans to realize winning the courts. The courts is important, but it's not the whole. You know, it's not the whole issue. It's not the whole battle. You have to be willing to make the public argument, and I think those muscles have atrophied. Along with a lot of other political persuasion muscles have atrophied amongst Republicans in recent years. On the other issues on that list, there, like you know, on the Senate candidates, like I remember, so in 2010. Obama's trying to pass, Obama gets Obamacare passed. Uh, you know, they try to get cap and trade, but they don't quite get it through. Big, the, the stimulus, you know, you know, uh, Newsweek has a cover. We are all socialists now. You know, people are saying the Republicans have been reduced to a rump regional party, yada, yada, yada. And I remember the talking to folks at the NRCC and other Republicans, like, we have candidates coming out of the woodwork and they're good ones. Adam Kinzinger, who is now the, you know, public enemy number one among certain Republicans, he was the good Samaritan of the year because he'd saved a woman from being knifed, right? You know, you just think, well, there's a guy you can make a campaign commercial about, right? There's a guy, you know, uh, we had veterans, uh, Ron Johnson, this CEO of a company out who's like, you know, all these guys are coming out and saying, I have to run, I don't want to do this, but I have to run for office because otherwise... Obama and these crazy Democrats in, in Capitol Hill, they're going to destroy the economy. They're going to destroy everything I've spent my life building. It's a very different Republican Party in the Trump era. And I think that if you are a bright, ambitious, energetic, good-willed conservative who might be either independently wealthy or you can afford to run for office, I think if you're a Pat Toomey type, you're looking at life in Washington and in the Senate and saying, why do I want to spend the rest of my life voting on omnibuses and judicial nominations? Mm-hmm. Congress is not where you make important changes in this country anymore. It is turned into um, 
some version of reality television where AOC and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene yell names at each other and compete for social media followers. I, I, so I think, I think part of the problem is that you've got a lesser quality of Republican candidates emerging in the Trump era. Because the primary you know, uh, litmus test of whether you're a good Republican is, do you agree with everything Donald Trump says or not? And if you've ever disagreed with Donald Trump, you are, you know, a, a rhino, apostate, can't have you, all kind of stuff. So I think that hurt. Um, I would much rather have a Pat Toomey running for re-election or a private sector Pat Toomey emerging than Mamet friggin' Oz. I mean, I, from the beginning, this looked like a joke. And apparently, uh, Trump chose to endorse him because Melania liked him, and Sean Hannity thought he'd be terrific. Good well, call, Sean go. Hannity. Well, I, like, well I mean, here's the thing. Like, <laughs> you know, for obvious reasons, Sean Hannity is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I'd like for moments like, and he had Oz on there the whole time. And what, this is one of the more really fascinating cases where diehard Trump supporters in the state of Pennsylvania are like, no, no, what are you talking? Kathy Barnett. Now, Kathy Barnett had all kinds of other issues. Sure. But I don't doubt Kathy Barnett was authentically Trumpy. Right. Mehmet Oz was this TV doctor. I mean, most people you know, had no idea he was a Republican. Including he's, he, right? He, he's been a Republican for about 20 minutes, right? So they, you just walk in and you get the Senate nomination? Excuse me? So uh, that was bad. Uh, Herschel Walker, I thought, was going to coast on happy memories of the 1983 University of Georgia National Championship. That is not happening. He, I, think he's, I think he's more likely to win than not, but I think it's close. Um, you're asking Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, to run 15 to 20 points ahead of Biden's approval rating in the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. That's asking a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think Walker will win, but let's face it, the man is not articulate by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Vance, I think, is going to win, but I, you know, DeWine is like crushing it right. in the governor's race. He's winning 16, 17 points. And so points. is Kemp in Georgia. Yeah, right? exactly. Right? So you've got some, these allegedly boring establishment Republicans who are supposed to be on the way out and dinosaurs going extinct and all the, you know, all this in-your-face populism is where the future of the Republican Party is. Well, these guys are not looking like slam dunks. And these boring establishment guys seem to be doing pretty well. Um, and oh, and then of course Masters, who just seems like this, uh, just, just you know, just just about, about the worst possible candidate in a, in, a, in what really should be no worse than a fifty-fifty race for Republicans in there. Uh, so yeah, weak Senate candidates hurt a lot. Um, I, I, you know, the issue environment has gotten better for Democrats. Gas is closer to three fifty a gallon instead of uh, five dollars a gallon. If people say inflation's getting better, and as we'll see what the official numbers say, I don't feel like I'm feeling it at the grocery store. Grocery store. I don't know about you. I do some grocery shopping in the house, and I don't feel like it. You know, I, maybe I'm maybe I'm gasping slightly softer when the bill comes than, than what I usually do. Uh, and then finally, like it's you know, the, you said the, the Trump reemergence. It's not just that Trump is back. Like if Trump was back and he was like talking about the border, maybe that would be good and energizing for Republican candidates. Trump is there and standing on the principle: I should be able to take whatever classified documents I want wherever I want. And, you know, I never would leave my bedroom that messy. That's, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, what, like, the, I remain relatively optimistic about a DeSantis nomination in part because Trump only talks about himself these days. And I think that's less appealing even to a Republican Party primary uh, voters who are, you know, instinctively pro-Trump in these circumstances. Anyway, I just dumped a bunch on you. So part of the problem, it seems to me, is what's the line from Milton that it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven? 
Trump is so transcendently, obviously more concerned about having unopposed rule of a Republican party, even if it makes it a, a rump party, mm-hmm. than having a Republican party uh, that is appealing to people who don't necessarily like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And the incentive structure for, first of all, people who have very safe seats in very red parts of the country have the same incentive structure because that's what gets you the nomination and, and like primary challenges are the only vulnerable point for, to incumbency for a lot of these people. Right. And it's like, I go back and forth about this, about whether the, it's, it's the incentive, the incentives are the same. Politicians want to get reelected, right? Mm -hmm. Incumbents want to stay in power. The problem is, is that the incentive structure, the mechanisms have moved so that now general elections are only a threat to a handful of politicians and it's really just primaries. And if you, and so in large swaths of Republican controlled America, going along with Trump's vision of the Republican party gets you the nomination. And then because of the big sort and gerrymandering and a thousand other things, um, you get, get elected. The problem is, is that that is not a recipe for a majority party. Correct. The dilemma is, I mean, I, I think you give, I agree with your analysis. I just, I think it was, it was more generous than I would be in some respects. Um, insofar as it's not just that the, the, the Portman types and the, um, what's our f- friend from Pennsylvania who's retiring? Um, Patrick Toomey? The, and the Toomey types, um, it's just not, it's not just simply that the party is, unaccommodating to them and that politics is unappealing to them. It's that it's sort of like, you know, I didn't mean to get all literary here, but it's sort of like Yates, you know, the best, the best lack all conviction and, and the worst are full of passion and intensity. You have these people like Mastriano in Pennsylvania to a certain extent masters, certainly like Kelly Lake Mm -hmm. who are perfectly willing to fill the vacuum that those Republicans um, have created by saying nothing with the worst version, the worst explanations of, say, abortion, right? The worst explanations of what politics is supposed to be about. And when the party no longer, when there isn't an incentive to tell these people to shut the hell up, at the level of national perceptions, that's what the party becomes. And I think it's really unfair because I think, you know, there are a lot of what I always call closet normals in the Republican Party who don't like any of this stuff. They're just not willing to say so. And, you know, and, and I'm friendly with some of these people and it drives me crazy because they just, you know, you, you look at the people who thought Trump should have been impeached after the, after January 6th, but just didn't see it as in their personal interest to say so. And I would say that was a sizable chunk of the Republican Party. Sizable chunk of the Republican Party is more on Liz Cheney's side, at least in principle, maybe not with what she is doing, um, then you'd have any reason to suspect uh, from their public statements or from from national coverage. And so if you're a partisan or an independent, it is totally reasonable. It's sort of like you, the, guy, the bonehead who says wants to get rid of contraception. Like if the Republican Party of Texas is putting out stuff about, you know, about homosexuality and gay marriage, 
saying, you know, th- this is disordered and we got to think about it and reversing and all that stuff. If you're like even a fairly conservative gay guy, <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you think that this is what the Republican Party actually wants to do? And I guess the question is, how do you get out of this dilemma? Is it just, you know, as a friend of mine puts it, the only way out is is to is for team aneurysm to win and that Trump just disappears? Huh. Um, what is what is the what is the way in which what is at what point do you get optimistic about what the actual public perception of the Republican Party outside of those who are already converted, right, mm-hmm. um, gets better? So I think pre-Mar-a-Lago raid, you could already start to see, oh, correction, so I recognize that didn't vote for Trump, uh, voted for Egg McMuffin in the first one, and uh, uh, Joe Jorgensen in 2020. Uh, Mitch Daniels in the second one. I also, Egg McMuffin, I regret that vote, but yeah, my vote doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so the just being like, oh, I, I, people said, you could, you're almost never Trump. Like, no, you can call me never Trump. I'm never voting for that guy. Uh, if Republicans want my vote, it's, I'm, pr- I'm really pretty easy to get. Just don't nominate Trump. That's really, I don't think I'm asking too much, uh, too much here. Uh, look, 20, Trump cost the, Demo- the uh, Republicans uh, the House in 2018. He lost Republicans, the White House, and the control of the Senate in 2020 or 2021, if you want to count the Georgia runoffs. We're going to see how 2022 goes. I laid out how some really abysmal selections in his endorsements ended up putting a bunch of really tough-to-elect candidates as the nominees in some key Senate races. There'll be an argument that Trump was dead weight on the party, which should have been a phenomenal year in 2022. I'd like to think that Ron DeSantis, and at this point, really, it's only Ron DeSantis is the only serious option I see against Trump. Um, Stranger things have happened, but I I don't see Larry Hogan suddenly catching fire or something like that. And DeSantis can say, well, you know, DeSantis' allies, DeSantis himself will not say this, will say, how many consecutive elections do we want to lose because of Donald Trump? I know you love this guy, but this guy's unelectable. He's radioactive. You know, he brought out every lefty in the country to vote for Joe friggin' Biden in 2020. Do you really want to, like, do you, you know, could he win? We have to hope that Biden stays bad. The Democrats, you know, don't keep him in place. And then we have to drag him over the hump left or right. And then, or comparison, we can run this guy, Ron DeSantis, who you saw this rant, this fantastic ad down there saying, thank you, governor, talking about all the things he did during the pandemic. So what do you want to do, Republicans? And I go, it's entirely possible that the Republican Party looks at us and says, nope, we're going to do it with Trump again. You know, he didn't really lose in 2020. You know, oh, we're going to win again in 20. And then it'll be four straight cycles that Republicans will lose. And so that the answer question will be, do Republicans want to lose five straight? Do they really want to, you know, after he loses again, could, by the way, could Trump win in 2024? Yeah. You know, if, if the you know, Biden's terrible and the economy's lousy and inflation's raging out of control, you know. Uh, it's not stranger things have happened, but I think that Trump is a very known quantity and, you know, tr- Trump versus Biden is, an, you know, just about the worst possible uh, scenario for the country. Unfortunately, it's in, in Trump's interest to make sure Biden is the nominee and it's in Biden's interest to see that Trump is the nominee. And so these two cranky old men are trying to, you know, prevent us from having any better options come uh, come next year. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with all that. Um, and although I, I don't necessarily agree on the DeSantis part. I mean, I, I, I'm not a DeSantis hater. I'm not a DeSantis lover either. I, I do think that he's got more of a glass jaw than people realize now. There's a, there's a 
it's entirely possible that he beats Trump. It's entirely possible he's the nominee. And I keep trying to tell the, you know, like, I know there are a lot of people who think I'm a never Trump fanatic, but like I have, you know, there are, there are much more fanatical never Trump people than I am and who want DeSantis, who want, you know, the, the war to continue no matter what and think that, that, and so they've sort of, the sort of Lincoln Project crowd has convinced itself that they're on the same page as Joe Biden in a lot of ways, right? Is oh, that absolutely. the the the, the right wing? There are a lot of right wing anti Trump people um, who want to perpetuate the argument that Biden has been making that just simply being a Republican makes you a Trumper. That's you know, like when Biden came out with that, you know, there was that tweet I ranted about last week about how what do you know? MAGA Republicans think that. Um, this country with tax cuts, with right? tax yeah. cuts and billionaires or whatever. Yeah. It's like, wait a second. So like the argument you use against Mitt Romney is now the mm-hmm. argument that you think is, is de- definitional of being a semi-fascist. I mean, it's a way of degrading the critique of Trump by saying it's, yeah. and it's really dangerous and really stupid. And I think this country would be vastly better off with a Ron DeSantis presidency than a Donald Trump presidency. And I don't understand how anyone can dispute this except people who want to monetize their dispute or so, so deep in the bunker in this stuff that they, they can't see that DeSantis is not Donald Trump for all sorts of different reasons, which is not necessarily high praise in my book. Right. I mean, Uh, um, but, uh, in terms of DeSantis's glass jaw, everyone I've ever talked to who's been in a room with him say he's not a very personable guy and that he's kind of socially awkward. I think that comes out on campaign trails. Uh, you and I both remember there was a time when everyone was telling us N- National Review has to get on board with Fred Thompson because he's the guy, um, or Scott Walker, or Rudy Giuliani. I mean, there are all of these people that when you actually put them into the primaries didn't pan out. And um, it is not obvious to me that DeSantis has the secret sauce for Republican politics, particularly if he's, if Trump runs. Um, but that said, I guess my problem is, 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 is sort of bigger picture than, than all this. And it's insofar as your analysis depends upon this idea that Republicans really want to win elections. And obviously most of the Republicans we know <laughs> want to win elections because that's the business that they're in is winning elections, Right. But it seems to me an enormous number of people are so high on sort of Fox News farts that they cannot grasp that Trump is bad for the Republican Party and that it's ba- he's bad for the image, he's bad for attracting, for growing the coalition that you need to win. Um, and enough of them exist, enough of those people exist, you know, 30% of the GOP, 40%, you pick your number, um, that's more than enough to win a primary. And if you tell them, oh, but you do realize we'll lose now, well, that's what you said in 2016, mm. right? So, like, uh, I, I just don't see how, given the sort of broader infotainment uh, populist framework, of so much of the right these days uh, can 
win the argument by saying, hey, look, we actually, you know, Mitch McConnell was right. These are bad candidates. Trump is bad at this. Let's actually just get rhinos who can win um, because they actually care about issues. It's, it feels very 2013 government shutdown to me. Where like if the second you start talking about, we start, I remember a friend of mine who was in a meeting during the shutdown and, and said to like one of the cruise people, so what's the end game here? And the response from this true believer about the government shutdown was, oh, you're one of these end game people. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. I like I, politics is about like what you can actually accomplish. How are we going to get out of this? And I find that stuff all over the place. And it's expected from a lot of the sort of, you know, the, the Tucker Carlson's and the Sean Hannity's in part because they're in the business of telling their audiences what they want to hear. But their audiences are not nearly large enough to actually steer the GOP into um, a good place, but they are large enough to keep the GOP in a bad place. What am I missing? Yeah. Um, not a lot, although I do think when you bring up Fred Thompson, let hard lesson of that campaign is that if you want to win the presidency, it really helps if your candidate wants to win the presidency. Yes, or even and wants Fred, the campaign. Yes, <laughs> you know, I have a story. I've, I've heard stories that I probably shouldn't. You know, I, I really like Fred Thompson. But, I do too. Um, yeah. You know, apparent, okay, so the short version is apparently at some fundraiser at somebody's house. You know, it's going well. Lots of people have shown up, written checks. Everything's going great. But the staff can't find Fred Thompson. Where is he? So start looking around. They find him in an upstairs bedroom watching college football. <laughs> now, I've never related to a presidential candidate more than about that little <laughs> anecdote. Um, but, yeah, you got to want to be. So, you know, according to every person who says Ron DeSantis really wants to do this. What I think makes DeSantis intriguing, and yeah, it, it's impossible. It's entirely possible uh, Trump just steamrolls him, and it just you know that this you know isn't even that much of a contest. But if DeSantis wants to, and if he has the nerve, and it you know certainly I don't think you should go into this if you don't have the nerve, is that at some point when Trump is doing, I am the greatest, I am the best, I did everything right, and I wanted to, you know, that DeSantis can turn to him and say, when I was fighting tooth and nail to keep my state open, and people thought I was crazy. You are listening to everything Fauci said. In other words, DeSantis can play Trump's card against Trump. He can say, you're the sellout. You're the one who went up to the establishment and did everything they said. You're the one who played along with shutting down this country. And if it wasn't for people like me, we would still be that. You know, like, he could really, you know, it depends on how much he's willing to go at it, but nobody. But that's the other thing that's kind of straight. You know, other than like the weird Rubio going nasty in 2016 that didn't go very well. We really haven't seen anybody in the Republican Party go up to Trump and just kind of like whack him and whack him from the right. Right. For, for, you know, um, now, would that work? I don't know. But I, I you know, it's, you know, but I do think there's an argument that he can make in addition to everything else of you are the past. You've already lost to Joe Biden. You, you know, all this kind of stuff. You have all this baggage, all kind of stuff to say, you know, on this issue, you actually were not on our side, Mr. President. You know, that, that'd be very interesting to see how that played out there. Um, by the way, uh, I didn't read all of Strewald's book, but I read the ex excerpt that was in Politico, which I thought was fantastic. The anecdote about Dick Morris and the frightening thought that, um, in addition to Roger Ailes, it sounded like most people at Fox News took Dis Dick Morris.com's uh, constant belief that, you know, Republicans are going to win 240 seats. Uh, in addition to the 200 that they have for 440 seats, yes, there are only 435 seats in the House, you know. Um, it is a danger 
and you're right that there, there's been this sense of uh, do do Republicans you know as you said my my entire worldview comes from the perspective that Republicans want to win, and I think you can best make the argument that if the Republicans choose to renominate Donald Trump in 2024, they aren't that serious about winning, that they believe the election was stolen. And that as long as they don't allow the election to be stolen this time, that we'll go through this all over again. And I think there'll be a lot, I think, you know, this, this sense of, I said, the Pat Toomey's of today are not choosing to run for re-election. I think a lot of people who are right of center might look at the Republican Party and just say, I don't, why, why am I in this? Why, why, am I, why am I spending my life with this? This is an organization that acts more like the Branch Davidians, that acts more like the Hale-Bopp Comet cult that, you know, is totally convinced that deliverance is coming and isn't willing to do what it actually takes to win elections. And you can't talk to these people because they reject everything that isn't what they want to hear as some evil grand conspiracy of the deep state and biased polls and fake news and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's conceivable that, yeah, it, it could shake out that way and it could be that bad. Um, and it'll be really bad for the country because I think we need a functioning, ideally strong right of center party and it's turning into this, you know, nationalist populist thing. But... Um, I guess the manager is kind of across that bridge when I get to it, because mm-hmm. uh, we still have 2022 to go, and I'd much rather see Republicans win at least a House uh, of Congress, if not both, to put the brakes on the Biden agenda. And you know, I, I also think, by the way, that like if the Republicans, if the Republicans do not do well, then I think this will make the third straight cycle where Republicans, including this, you know, Fox News viewing. Uh, you know, per person you have in mind, the third straight cycle where they thought they were going to have a big win and Trump assured them they're going to have a big win. And Sean Hannity told them they're going to have like Oz was supposed to be winning big. What's going on here? He's losing to a guy who's drooling on himself. Why? You know, my, my sense is like at some point, don't you get tired of being told something great's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. Don't you get turned into Charlie Brown in the football? But apparently some people really like swinging and missing, I guess. You know, earlier I was going to get at this meta thing, but we've gone long and I, I don't need to drag you over the goals about it. But like um, earlier when you were talking about the Senate, you used the phrase, you know, we'll pick up blah, 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 blah. I I am sort of, I, I catch myself talking in that way all the time um, because I did it for 20 years. But mentally I try to catch myself because that's not where I'm at anymore. Like, yes, I agree with you. I'm very much on, you know, Team Charlie Cook on this, that, I want gridlock for sure, right? So like I would prefer Republicans win in that sense in the Senate, right? Or the House, whatever. But we'll get, if 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 they get one of the Houses, we kind of got gridlock, right? But other than that, I have so little rooting interest in today's Republican or Democratic Party. I mean, that's where I differ with people like Bill Kristol, who I love the guy personally, but I just think, his judgment has gone kind of weird on this stuff where there's this assumption that if you're not rooting for one party, you got to be rooting for the other. And again, podcast is called the remnant for a reason. I have just profound philosophical metaphysical problems with the democratic party, but I also have profound metaphysical problems with at least the Republican party that puts itself on display because this is what I was getting at about the people the people who I know are decent and would be good stewards of their public role, you know, with the exception of, say, Mitt Romney, pretty much, and even Mitt Romney does not weigh in on a lot of stuff, right? I mean, 
the incentives for trying to claw back the party to sanity are all there, but there, there are no incentives to try and do it publicly. You listen to like Mitch McConnell and the way he talks about like candidate quality is an issue is like, I get it, you know, cause he wants the Republic he wants to be majority leader and all that kind of stuff. And so he has to do this sort of deadpan, you know, thing, but that is not exactly a rallying cry for normalcy. And I think that one of the problems that conservatives, you know, that con- conservatives like you, conservatives like me, intellectual, you know, uh, writers of the right have gotten themselves into is that we've spent so long thinking about what is good for the Republican Party is good for the conservative movement, what's good for the conservative movement is good for the Republican Party, that a lot of people have missed that those interests really don't align the same way anymore. You have the president of the Heritage Foundation speaking at the National Conservative Conference, or whatever that thing is, saying how I'm not here to tell you that, um, uh, you know, he, I, I don't want to butcher the quote, but basically he says, we're joining your movement, right? So the Heritage Foundation, which was um, one of the bulwarks of sort of Reaganite conservatism, is now very much on board with the sort of populist boob bait. Um, we are all vassals to big tech, Blake Masters kind of nonsense. And and it'd be one thing if it was just rhetoric, but there are policy consequences to that that are at odds with the conservative mo- interests of the conservative movement um, and also at odds with the interests of the country. Um, and like a good analogy for it is you were talking about earlier, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, the pro-life position, and I think DeSantis has actually been kind of brilliant about this. He put in a 15-week you know, uh, limit and then he just stopped talking about it. He says, I did the pro-life thing and then shh, it's not what the extremists want. It's this is this is progress. Let's have a pause at this plateau for a little while. Um, but the analogy is is very much to the, the the pro-life movement. The very worst thing for the pro-life movement and for conservatives generally, I shouldn't say for conservatives generally, but the very worst thing for the pro-life movement is to have the only pro-lifers out there talking about how the raped 10-year-old girl has to bring a baby to term. That will not move the ball in the direction of a more pro-life country. The idea that I that one is supposed to like, I'm very much on Team Kevin. I'm on Kevin Williamson's side of that whole debate that unfolded in our last over the last couple of weeks. Um, at some point, it seems to me that there's a fiduciary obligation of conservatives to say the stuff that is coming to define the Republican Party is not in the interests. Forget in the interests of the Republican Party. You guys can do what you want to do. It's not in the interest of conservatism, and you need some. We need more bright lines on that stuff. How do, am I? Am I just being a sanctimonious nitwit? No. <laughs> oh, no. Um, did, did I say? Did I say no fast enough? That, no, uh, it's just fine. You, you could have said yes. I, you know, yeah. we'd still no. be friends. You know. Right. So, I have not thought about like the the choice facing Arizona conservatives. Uh, you know, you, you got to. Mark Kelly, who's, let's face it, a Democratic yes man. Mm-hmm. And when he says, you know, uh, oh, I, I sometimes deviate from my party verbally, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, he votes the whisper. way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, versus Blake Masters, who, in addition to all of his other, let's just say, oddities, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that this is some tech bro who just decided, I'm going to be a senator one day. And, uh, but the idea of like, I guess that the erasing of the uh, website 
on, on the abortion stuff really strikes me as he thinks people are stupid. Mm-hmm. He, he really thinks he's clever. And that really... Which is sort of the defining ethos of all of those Silicon Valley new yeah. nationalist yeah. guys. Is we're like, just smarter like, than the rubes, but we have to say the things notice, rubes like from time to time. Do, do you think people aren't paying attention to abortion this cycle? Right. You know, like, um, did, did you suffer a head injury recently and you need to be checked for a concussion? You know, um, I, so closer to home, uh, I know a bunch of you know folks who are right of center in Pennsylvania, and they have the option against um, you know the daytime talk show host with his crudités or the comatose lurch. And I, you know, I could never vote for the comatose lurch. I can't, you know, Fetterman, by the way, I, 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 and many other folks strongly suspect that the point of Fetterman staying in the race is to get elected. And that he will suddenly recognize that his health problems are too serious. And the democratic governor, assuming there's a democratic governor will appoint a democratic replacement. And I've, you know, way back, you know, right around, I was starting at NR. Um, I wrote about Torricelli. I was covering was writing for the Bergen Record through a wire service, and I, you know, the Torricelli maneuver struck me as like the sleaziest, you know, shadiest, most ridiculous. Well, we think this guy's going to lose, so we've decided he's going to resign. We're putting in this guy here. We've dug up the corpse of um, uh, Frank Lautenberg, and he's going to run instead. And it just—I remember, you know, that seething with that. So. I probably would come around and vote for Dr. Oz primarily because he would vote to make Mitch McConnell majority leader, but I wouldn't have any enthusiasm. And in the next primary, I'd probably fight like hell to make sure we had a better option. McCon- uh, Dave McCormick would have been fine. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a perfectly decent option there. We didn't do it. Who, who by the way, could have self, oh, by the way, when you talk about how the energy is on the populist side, national side, all that stuff, I can't help but notice Oz, uh, Masters, Vance, uh, Walker, all these guys are doing terrible at fundraising. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe it's because they're all perceived to be rich and people feel like they don't need to donate to them. But if all of this energy was on the nationalist populist side, and if that was the wave of the future, and tomorrow belonged to them, and all that stuff, I kind of figured they wouldn't be getting blown out in terms of fundraising. Uh, the Democrats are doing fantastic. Yeah, but I also None think a lot this- of the small donors are giving all their money to the Save America pack. Probably. Yeah, that's probably a good chunk of it. And Trump's not donating, you know, much of any of it. And in the ground of the great ironies is that, you know, uh, all of them except masters have to basically depend on Mitch McConnell to come in and save their butts. Right. With, you know, know, allocating tens of millions. But the part of me was like, well, if this really was this grand wave sweeping the country and that this is where all the energy and enthusiasm is, these guys would be doing better. Mm -hmm. And and Vance would be running 15 points ahead of DeWine instead of the other way around. So... Maybe but that's I'm sort wrong. of my Maybe. point is that this yeah. is this, that there's a lot of energy in this rump cadre within the Republican Party that gets you to 30 percent. And then you have to, like, persuade the sort of the people like you who don't like it, but still would rather see a Republican in there than than a Democrat rather than actually picking a guy who might appeal to both a Republican yeah, yeah, who's yeah, acceptable, yeah, so. you know? Yeah. So, I, I again, I don't think you're being sanctimonious about it. I, I, I keep point, trying to point out to. Uh, when you know when push comes to shove on these issues, people like me should not be your hard vote to get. And if you can't, you know, never mind the suburban soccer mom down the street who might vote for a uh, Glenn Youngkin, but who wouldn't vote for some of these. Like you know, like I, I remember when the Trump base didn't show up in the Georgia runoffs, and on the editors I had this, you know, temp, you know, I lost my, I flew off the handle, right? Angry Jim. And I made this point, like, you know what's nice about soccer moms and suburbanites and the white-collar dads and all those guys? 
they show up to vote every single time. Whether it's in November, whether it's a primary, whether it's a uh, off-year election, you know, city council, they show up and vote because it's a city, it's a it's a duty and obligation. But instead, you know, this for a long time that was the bread and butter of the Republican Party: nice, boring suburbanites. And yes, I am a, a nice, boring suburbanite. And I, you know, uh, so to me, this is like this is who the Republican Party should spend a lot of time trying to appeal to, because you know why they vote year in and year out. Like, no, 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 we don't need to appeal to that group. We have these blue collar, uh, rural to exurban whites. They're 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 the new base of the party. Well, here's the problem: if Lynn Wood can show up and say, "Ah, oh, the whole thing's uh, fixed. Ah, oh, the whole election's rigged," and they'll stay home because of that then you can't make them the base of your party. You mm-hmm. can't count on them to come in year after year. So we had this demographic that showed up rain or shine and you know reliable, and all they wanted for you to do is cut their taxes, put criminals in jail, you know, maybe secure the border, don't, but not necessarily uh, depo- uh, deport Consuelo the maid. Uh, you know, but basically, yeah, they're not the most conservative demographic, but boy, oh boy, they come out and vote you know, year in, year out. Instead, we traded it for this uh, demographic that believes in crazy conspiracy theories and will not show up if Sidney Powell says that Venezuelan hackers are, are doing it. Like, that's a dumb decision. Mm-hmm. You are trading one demographic that's going to show up every year for a demographic that may or may not show up depending on what crazy stuff they hear. It's a terrible decision. But that's what's going on in the Republican Party these days, I guess. And that's why we can't have nice things. <laughs> All right, Brother Jim, thank you so much for doing this. We could obviously go around the horn many, many, many more times. And, of course, you have an open invitation to come back anytime you like. And um, I'm going to get ahead of Chris. I, you know, I, I've got some, uh, I got some ground to make up. And i got to say, when I think of competitors in a, in a fiercely fought foot race, the image I immediately come to mind is you versus Chris Steyerwald. <laughs> um, with me trailing behind, gasping for air. All right. Well, um, you can play you can play chariots of fire, but the irony is that we doesn't it doesn't it just looks like slow motion. That's actually how fast <laughs> we go. Yeah, and then some toddler on a trike just goes flies past you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the new book everyone should get. Order it now. Do it now. Get multiple copies. Give to friends. Is the is gathering five storms. It's part of the uh, le clique des jours. Uh, Dangerous. I don't know how to say dangerous in French. Uh, Part of the Dangerous Click series. And uh, uh, Jim Garrity, thanks so much for being here. Always enjoy it, Jonah. Glad to hear your voice again. Okay, so uh, Jim Garrity has left the studio. It was um, um, great to have him back. It's been a while. And just just to sort of contextualize things, I'm recording actually this late on Monday because I'm on the road tomorrow. We're having a dispatch all-hands retreat. Um, I don't know what this is going to do to me filing the G file or um, the second conversation remnant, um, but I'll let you know. And um, um, obviously, I could have, like, uh, Jim and I could have gone around the horn on a, on a bunch of different things for a while more. I'm sure some people in the comments will point some of the things out. Uh, that's fine. But I um, I love the guy, and I'm delighted to have him back on. And um, everyone really should check out Gathering Five Storms. And um, other than that, uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.